Barry Sherry here. Thanks for tuning in to Pink Noise, a radio show dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who have mined and shined their inner gold. I'm recording on board a floating home that I share with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. Introducing today's guest, Carrie Pizzullo, might take a minute to uncover all the reasons why I invited her on the program today. So instead, I'll drop you into the part of our conversation where I decided to ask her directly how she would describe herself. In this episode, you'll discover her findings as a professional historian as it relates to her role as a feminist and why a decade ago she decided to write a book about Hugh Hefner and Playboy. One thing that took her a while to discover is that her two paths, that of an academic and her spiritual journey as a witch, have much more in common than she realized because they are both about finding and resurrecting women's lost voices. And once again, the topic of death and grieving shows up. Hang on, friends. Let's dive in. Welcome, Carrie Pizzullo, to the Pink Noise Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm curious how you would describe yourself sort of asked myself that question recently. And the first word that popped into my head was seeker um, because it encompasses so much of my passion and curiosity about life. But I'm also a mother, um, which is its own seeking and adventure, right? And sort of endless curiosity and trying to figure things out. I am a former academic. I have a PhD in American history. And I've specialized in the study of women, gender, and sexuality. And I taught at the university level for a long time and just recently um, quit doing that so that I could pursue my spiritual path full time, both personally and professionally. There was something that you wrote to me about as we were getting to know one another, that you had found this intersection of women's history and the the way in which women have been portrayed in the past, almost the way in which women have been overlooked in the past, and that you've been doing some work to illuminate the roles that women have played over time. Did I, did I understand that correctly? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it actually relates back to your previous question, how would I describe myself? Maybe the first word, I could start with is feminist um, because I always have been literally since I was a little kid and didn't even know what that word was or what it might mean. I've always been um, uh, of a mind um, about issues of equality and social justice and been aware of inequality, um, especially, you know, I mean, I grew up in a very sort of uh, not diverse place. Um, so it took me time to develop an awareness of other injustices, but uh, women's subjugation and inequality, it was just something I was always inherently aware of, even as a little kid. And so it's always been really significant for me. And so when I became a professional historian, um, I went pretty quickly into women's history. And so much of the work of women's history, as well as people who are focusing on uh, people of color, the working class, the LGBTQ community, all of these histories for, for a long time, the histories of so many of us, um, however we identify. If we don't identify as a straight white male, our histories were buried, our histories were ignored, and we were told that we didn't play a significant part in history. So the work of historians who study things like women, gender, people of color, indigenous people, poor people, et cetera, um, is about uncovering those stories. And so the work of anybody studying the history of women is the work of uncovering and bringing women 
and questions of gender back into the historical narrative. And so I've dedicated much of my life to that. What are you finding there? What are some things that are surprising you about the stories that weren't published? Oh my goodness. There, there's just endless um, surprises. There are endless layers of complexity. When we start to dig beneath the surface of history and we realize the role that so many overlooked marginalized people have played in history. Um, for me, example, for example, um, I published a book on the history of gender and sexuality in Playboy magazine, particularly in its first few decades, the 50s through the 70s. And what I discovered is actually was a huge shock to me. And it was that the, the magazine, while as sexist as many of us always assumed it was, there was not the whole story. Um, there was more going on in the magazine and it was actually more pro-woman than anybody had given it credit for. That was shocking to me, right? So right there that emphasized for me the point that our understanding of history broadly, but especially regarding issues of gender and sexuality is much more complicated than we allow it to be. We assume everything's very black and white and it's not. Whether you're talking about femininity or masculinity or identity or orientation or whatever, it's always much more complex than we want to allow it to be. And I think particularly the work of historians um, who are looking to uncover the contributions of people of color are doing some of the most important work in American history now. Um, because again, there are so many layers and so much of it has been ignored or denied for so long. Yeah. I wanna ask you about that. I wanna ask you more about um, what you found in writing the book about Playboy's history. You discovered that there was more emphasis put on, was it women's rights? What was it that you uncovered there that surprised you? When I dug not too deeply, I didn't actually even have to dig that deeply into the history of the magazine in my book, Bachelors and Bunnies, I discovered that the magazine was more pro-woman than anybody had given it credit for. Now I've, there's like endless fascination with Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine. So um, I, I was fortunate to get a lot of media coverage when my book came out, um, which is 10 years ago now, and I still get interview requests for this. It's like, we can't get enough of Hef. Uh, but, and in, in a lot of this media coverage, I've been misquoted many times as saying that Hugh Hefner was a feminist or that Playboy was a feminist magazine. And I never said that, right? Um, and that's sort of my point is that it's complex. It has to be a nuanced conversation. So what I discovered is that the anti-feminist, the anti-woman stuff, the sexist stuff was true, but we already know all of that, right? There's objectification in the magazine. It's absolutely prioritizes a white heterosexual male perspective and male power. All of that is 100% true. But what I was so surprised to discover is that there was a lot in the magazine that created space for women's sexual expansion and women's ownership of their own sexuality. There was explicit support for what at the time was called, the term used at the time in the 50s and 60s, tolerance for homosexuality. Even in the 1950s, the magazine was speaking out in support of acceptance of homosexuality. The magazine um, was explicit in its support for civil rights, even though there's still racism in the magazine and it was very white in its models and you know, Playboy centerfolds and things like that. And then once you do get to the time period of the women's movement in the late 60s and early 70s, the magazine was explicit in its support for various feminist issues. Um, it was talking about legalization of abortion before the women's movement really even came on the scene. Because there was a national conversation around legalization of abortion predating the women's movement. And Playboy was, was uh, in support of that. 
it spoke um, explicitly in support of the Equal Rights Amendment, of women being, you know, should have the right to, to pursue education as they want, pursue careers as they want, all kinds of stuff. And so what I discovered was that the magazine was very clear in its support for what historians call liberal feminism which was the mainstream, like Betty Friedan, National Organization for Women kind of feminism that argued for women's equal access to public, the public sphere, education, the workplace, anti-discrimination, stuff like that. The magazine was vociferous in its criticism of what we call radical feminism. Radical feminism was, was critical of, of what the, the foundation of what Playboy was built on, heterosexuality, traditional beauty standards, um, critical of power imbalances um, in private relationships between men and women, lots of issues of sexuality. So, there's a lot of criticism coming, especially from radical feminists, but for millions of readers, about 20 or 25% of which were women every month, they were getting this magazine that was blatantly political and blatantly liberal in its support for a number of causes that, that feminists supported in the 60s and early 70s. And if I can add, it wasn't just the politics of the magazine, the quote, good girl next door, right? It's a cliche now, but it was basically invented by Playboy. The good girl, the girl next door, the girl who, you know, you would see at church or you would see at work or something like that. Um, she liked sex too, even if she was unmarried and there was nothing wrong with that. And the Playmate centerfolds always had a secondary um, photo feature that accompanied them. And they would show, and there'd be um, a story, you know, supposedly, however true or not, but a story about these models and what they like to do in their free time and what their goals were and hopes and dreams. And they would talk about going to college or what jobs they wanted to have, or if they wanted to get married. There was at least one that in the secondary photos that accompanied the nude centerfold showed the model sitting down at dinner with her parents. And so the message was, if her parents are okay with her sexuality and her taking off her clothes for all of you to oogle, why would we have any problem with it ourselves? There's nothing wrong with sex, even for unmarried, quote, good girls. And that was, I, what I argue in my book is that that was huge at the time because women could not find a message like that anywhere else in American culture in the 50s and early, and early 60s. It's fascinating to me to realize how big of a taboo women's sexuality was, how threatening women's sexuality was to dominance, to white male dominant culture, to their power. Mm -hmm. And yet it was through our sexuality and through having sex that, that procreation occurred right right so it's like this act itself that creates life that brings about new generations that like when exploited becomes a taboo yeah and oh my gosh just that alone right that is an ancient story women being punished for being sexual men, or at least many men, wanting sex from women, but then hating them for it. Women being expected to be sexual creatures and then being punished for it. And if we're just gonna even just focus on the United States in the 1950s, it gets even worse than that, right? Because if you talk about procreation and creating the next generation, women were in even more of a bind in the 50s because there was this really, really harsh double standard. Like a woman's life, particularly a white, a white middle-class woman's life 
could be and most likely would be ruined if say she got pregnant outside of wedlock. There were different expectations um, amongst many working class communities, amongst communities of color, right? So mostly what we're talking about are again, the women who were supposed to be the good ones, the respectable ones, and that's white and middle class. So a woman would be really harshly punished if she broke any of these sexual rules. Um, uh, it's discovered that she's had sex before marriage or sex with too many partners before marriage or uh, pregnant out of wedlock, etc. But even on the point of procreation, women in the 50s were supposed to have satisfying sexual relationships with their husbands nobody else and not outside of marriage. Of course, people always did, right? That's always been a thing, but the expectations of the time, the cultural standards were that husbands and wives were supposed to have satisfying sex lives. But yeah, um, women are, are really backed into a corner in the fifties, both sexually, there was a very fine line they were supposed to walk, but then even when they were doing it right, supposedly in, a loving marriage in a committed marriage and they're having a bunch of babies while well, they can't you know overdo it overdo their mothering because then they're accused of this momism and and the downfall of american civilization so there's it's a really misogynist time <laughs> um it's a it's a time that is really harsh uh, both for women in general there's intense homophobia at the time intense white supremacy um, yeah, and that's the, that's the culture that, that gave birth to Playboy. And that also is the culture that gave birth, depending on your age group, I'm thinking about my peers, like that gave birth to our parents. And then I think about what is present today, like what I'm talking about with, in, in my communities, in my circles, we're talking about toxic masculinity, we're talking about why my last guest, Serena Myers, wrote a book called Sacred Anger. And we had a conversation about why a lot of women-identified folk never felt safe expressing their anger because it wasn't an emotion that they got to have. But, but boys or individuals growing up who were male-identified were encouraged, you know, you just referenced, be manly men you know, don't be sissy boys. And yet what the world is missing are young men who were raised to believe that they are allowed to have a range of feelings that include vulnerability and sensitivity and kindness and thoughtfulness. And that does need to be nurtured. It does need to be accepted. And women, girls need to be raised not to be shushed and not to be silenced but to use their voice and to use their anger. And so I'm hearing you talk about what it was like then. And I'm seeing the fast forward of two generations and we're, we're looking at the result of, of what two generations of that behavior bred and seeing the, the inherent flaws. And my gosh, like this idea of, of why we don't love ourselves enough. It, I just find it everywhere. The more I look, the more and more I look, the more I see signs of men and women and gender neutral folks just not loving themselves enough because of all the stigma of pressure, society, generational trauma, and, and so all of this discovering that you did as you moved through academia and your research and your writing, you used your knowledge to move you in a new direction. And it sounded like you moved it to move you in a direction towards spirituality. And I wanna talk about that pivot, why you left academia after all of this work. Well, I still love history. Um, I still find it fascinating and important, but my spirituality has become a consuming passion for me in a way that history just no longer is. But I wouldn't say that my historical discovery 
led to my spiritual interest. I would say that both of these things grew from that feminism, for lack of a better word, that feminism within me. My, my dad brainwashed me to be interested in history when I was a kid. So that was always there. And this interest in the, the mysteries of the world and mysticism and things like that, that was always there. What the, the pivot was for me was taking the plunge to move out of academia and devote myself to my spiritual path, as well as the pivot of maybe less of a pivot, but the continuity in me understanding the connection between the two. Because for a long time, I felt like there were two halves of me. There was the intellectual academic, and then there was the woo-woo spiritual gal. And I thought, these, these are two halves of me. They have nothing to do with each other. And I had a, um, a business slash, slash life coach for a while who kept saying, you can't see this. It's all the same thing. You can't see how much this is connected. And I was like, no, I can't see it. I'm sorry. And then finally, I realized, oh, it is all very connected. It's all an expression of the same thing. It is all an expression of this need to resurrect women's lost voices, resurrect women's buried power, right? My own and for other people. And I began to see much more continuity between these two things, resurrecting um, lost voices of history. But then also, I think that this, this spiritual work does the same thing because it is so based in the power of women. And you know, we use words like femininity and divine feminine and things like that. And I know that those words are limiting and not everybody identifies with them. They're not good words. Um, I, I will sometimes use yin and yang in place of masculine and feminine because I think that they're less exclusive. But I would also say that whatever we're referring to when we talk about the divine feminine, when we talk about femininity or masculinity, all of these things are a part of everybody, right? So I know that these are exclusive words, but um, until we come up with some better language, I reference them. Um, I think that resurrecting the power of femininity, resurrecting masculinity so that it can be more encompassing and healthy for all of us, whoever you are, right? To be more emotional and sensitive and vulnerable, right? All of this work is the same, whether we're finding the lost voices of history or we're finding the buried powers of, of energy and spirituality and earth connection, right? We often, the, the connection that humans have to the earth, it's often put in gendered terms. The earth is often um, conceived as feminine. Um, our relationship to it, our reciprocal relationship is often described as, you know, mother earth and we're her children or whatever. So it's all very, very gendered. So it's kind of all the same thing, right? Yeah, one is in the context of, you know, explicit like American history in the 1950s and academia. And this is, uh, you know, sort of the, the woo-woo energetic stuff, but it's all doing the same work. It's all doing the same work, let alone the fact that so many people who are on this path reference history and particularly ancient history. And a lot of this is inaccurate because we claim that like pre-Christian paganism was X, Y, Z, right? And I see this all the time. People claim that before Christianity, you know, the world was matriarchal and women had so much power and blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately it is not true. There were very, very few um, ancient cultures that were truly what we would today consider um, accepting of women's power and authority and autonomy. Um, so we imagine these things about the past. A lot of it's kind of invented or what we want to believe about the past, but it's still referencing history, right? It's still trying to draw on or draw from this history, real or imagined. So there's just much more connection between these two halves of me and the work that I've been pursuing than I had realized for a long time.
what did it give you access to when you got to put these two halves of you together? The, the knowledge and wisdom and experience with this innate knowing and feeling When you saw the power of who you get to be by merging them, what what grew from that? Well, I mean, there's a, a wholeness and less, less confusion about who I am. I can now talk about playboy in the same context as my woo-woo witchcraft. <laughs> um, it's, it's just so much more of a whole. And for me personally, I've been better able to embrace my role as a teacher, my role as a communicator, my role as a writer, and to see the continuity between all of these things. Because again, at the base is this feminism, which is a problematic term, and I recognize that. Um, but but this, this drive that I have always had since I was a kid to empower myself and to um, empower women and to challenge patriarchy, um, and so, yeah, it just makes much more sense to me. And it, it makes me see how related these things are. And if we're talking about something like femininity and patriarchy and how the world is set up and how we're supposed to be um, supposedly according to these really rigid standards, um, I think just that pursuing that wholeness and saying that all of this stuff does go together is actually anti-patriarchal in and of itself because patriarchy wants us to put things in these rigid boxes. Patriarchy wants us to say like, no, you know, it's only this intellectual, rational work that is valuable, right? And pushing against that says, no, 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 right? Energetic work, spirituality, combining it all um, into wholeness is, 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 what is healthy and what is need what is needed to change in the world anyway if that makes any sense right it's not just my intellectual capacity as an academic who was sanctioned by the powers that be and given a phd and said okay you jumped through enough hoops you know now we accept you now you're legitimate right i'm i've gone off in another direction like you can't get a phd in witchcraft basically right you can't get a phd in woo woo whatever <laughs> as i often refer to it right as my woo woo work and so saying well too bad i don't need that sanctioning i don't need that piece of paper i don't need that hierarchical structure to sanction what i'm doing i can pull it all together that's challenging the patriarchy in and of itself right so i think it's sort of all um uh, related I don't know if that answered your question, but that's sort of what it makes me think of. Hmm. So I hear you're able to find your own way to challenge the system, to challenge patriarchy, simply by giving yourself permission to explore the path that feels right for you. Did yeah. I get that right? Absolutely. And I think that that is so much of the work that I'm trying to do in empowering other people to recognize they have this ability within them too. That you don't need someone to mediate your spiritual life for you. You can have direct access to the divine. You can have direct access to um, your intuition and spirit communication and relationship with the earth. Right, you don't have to be within a formal structure to do that. You don't have to have somebody give you permission to do it. You, that magic already lives within you. That power already lives within all of us. And I truly believe that one of the things, but it might be the first thing that we need to salvage human civilization on earth, if it's still possible at this point with climate change, that I think probably the first thing we need to do is to develop that relationship with the earth. 
right? Again, resurrect our reciprocal relationship with the earth and our honoring and our love of the earth. And I think that all of these things are connected. Honoring your own intuition and your own energetic power and creating reciprocal, respectful relationship with the earth, I think it's all the same thing because we are of the earth. And the more we respect ourselves, and as you said, you know, love ourselves, the more we can get to that place, the more we can love the earth, that is how we're going to maybe save ourselves. I don't know if that's possible at this point. I don't know if it's too late, but I think nothing's going to work if we don't do that first. Amen, sister. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're preaching to the choir right here. Yes. So let's share with uh, let's share with my listeners what some of the ways are that you celebrate the earth. Well, I think there is first and foremost just the recognition that we have to come to that we are one in the same. And I believe that there is living consciousness in the earth. And that same living consciousness is in us. And it's in each other. And it's in the plants and the rocks and the animals and the water and the air. And so if you just start with that, I mean, that's enough as far as I'm concerned, right? Just that recognition that the earth isn't a a mostly dead resource for us to harvest right? Um, That a plant is more than just a biological entity, that it's a conscious, energetic, um, and spiritual entity. And it is that same consciousness that is within us, right? How can you not then treat the earth with more respect and more reverence? In terms of sort of a very practical way or a tangible way of honoring the earth, there's what's called the wheel of the year. Um, A lot of pagans uh, work with this. A lot of practitioners of witchcraft work with it. And it is marking seasonal change, um, marking the winter solstice and the summer solstice, the longest night of the year and the longest day of the year, the spring equinox and the fall equinox, when light and dark are in balance. There are these moments throughout the year where people around the world in different contexts have marked these changes since ancient times. A lot of modern paganism is what we imagine about the past, (laughs) Um, but we do know that cultures around the world for hundreds if not thousands of years have marked certain points of the year, such as the winter solstice or the summer solstice. And so those provide very good opportunities to honor the earth and to create a relationship with the earth. And so there's lots and lots of things you can do to mark these various moments. And there's no right or wrong answer. You can sort of do whatever you're inspired to do. Um, Quieting down at the winter solstice and lighting some candles, going inward, meditating, allowing some space and some quiet in your life in the dark and quiet of winter is one way of aligning with the winter solstice. Aligning with the summer solstice is um, uh, being outside and celebrating and allowing the exuberance of summer and the life of summer to be expressed through you in whatever way makes sense to you is a way of doing that, right? You can dance around a bonfire naked if that's what appeals to you. Um, so there's all kinds of things you can do. Um, but again, you know, I sort of look at it in two ways. There's just the day-to-day being in relationship with the earth, taking time to notice, right? Where, um, I am, um, well, it snowed yesterday in Northern Colorado. Um, but you know, there are buds that are starting to come to life. There are plants in my garden that are starting to come to life, just slowing down enough to notice that and be with that and be grateful for that and love and appreciate the life and the renewal that comes with spring. That's aligning with the earth. That is honoring the earth, right? So there's this way of just being on any given day. And then there are, again, these more formal, practical sort of moments um, where there are gonna be lots of other people marking the moment at the same time, such as the solstices or something. 
And what about sustainability practices and uh, pollution? Absolutely, environmental work is honoring the earth. And if the spiritual aspect of this doesn't really appeal to you, um, I know a lot of people who are practicing witches or practicing pagans who are atheists, right? And if you don't like the talk of spirit or goddess or souls or anything like that, or even consciousness of the earth, you can still, I think, um, this path can still work for you from an environmental perspective, right? Because it's still about that relationship with the earth, however you want to interpret it. Um, if you simply want to strengthen your relationship with the earth, or um, honor the earth in greater ways, or reconnect with your own self and rediscover yourself and, and your authentic voice, right? It's really open to interpretation. And that's something that I talk about in my course, um, Discover Magic, Discover You, which was a, a, a foundations course, an introduction um, to energetic and intuitive living. You don't have to even consider yourself a woo-woo witchy kind of person to do this work. It's really about reconnecting with yourself and the world around you. What changed in you? What shift did you notice? as you started to recalibrate and honor the, the moon and the equinoxes and have this expansive relationship with earth and living things. What did you notice? Well, so much, so much has changed. Um, in a very personal sense, I feel like I discovered that all the things that I was so fascinated by when I was a kid, that I wanted to believe were re was real, magic and spirit and energy and mystery and mysticism, I discovered that it's all true. It's all real. And that infuses my life with so much magic and wonder and awe. I've been seeing a lot of ravens lately like more than usual and dreaming about them. And, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. Now I think, what is the universe trying to tell me with these magical beings that keep appearing in front of me, right? It just makes life more cool, <laughs> right? It makes life more fun and cool and exciting. It has also, in a, in a, in a more sort of grounded practical sense, it has given me tools to survive life. It gives me peace. It gives me a greater sense of calm and stability and trust. When things aren't going well, I reconnect with this. I reconnect with this work and this path and I trust. It makes me trust, right? Trust my path, trust my purpose, trust my direction. Um, I don't know how much I want to say about this because I'll probably start crying, um, but it has helped me survive and helped me continue to survive the loss of somebody very close to me. Above and beyond anything, I don't know how I would have gotten through that loss without this practice. I mean, in the very moments it was happening, this is how I survived it because it makes me trust in the universe and what I believe, you know, right, is, is, our, is our, our soul and the work of our souls and our connections and the way those connections continue on. This work allows me to receive communication from my loved one who has, who has gone to the other side. I can hear from him and trust it. I can see him in dreams. I can hear his voice and I for the most part, don't think I'm making it up, right? The, the comfort that that brings has allowed me to survive. Um, and I really don't know what I would have done over the last year since he passed away without this practice. And so there's just so much that it has done for me. That's why I've changed my life to center this, why I gave up the career that I spent years working for 
I got a PhD. I got a job in academia, which is very hard to do because they're few and far between. I got a tenure track job and then I quit <laughs> and I left it to do this full time because it just means that much to me. I get the sense now that it was preparing you that you're embracing of all of the more that exists in this realm that is available to you. It's almost like you charted your own path of faith. You were able to create the rock that you would need to endure this year. Yes. Oh yes, absolutely. It, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, and I actually, if, if you want me to say some, some more about that broadly, um, and in terms of the, the sort of preparation for this, in the fall of 2017, the only way I can describe it is I began to feel the energy of death draw near in various ways. And I even started to consider which I had never thought about before. And I didn't even have a desire to do it. I just kind of felt like I was gonna end up doing it. I even started to consider that maybe in my future at some point, I might become a death doula. And I had never lost anybody close to me before, but I literally could feel the energy, death, uh, the energy of death near me. I didn't think I was gonna die. I wasn't worried about my husband or my child, but I knew somebody was going to die. And I even told my husband, you need heads up. Something's coming. I don't know who, but somebody's going to die. And that fall, my aunt died. And it was a whole thing with my daughter who didn't even know my aunt, but my grandmother was living with us at the time. So it was her oldest daughter. And um, so I was a really important source of support for her. She was like 97 or 98 years old and had to lose her child. It was horrible. So that very much felt like the energy of death expressing itself in my life. A few months later, I lost my oldest cat. Then I lost an elderly friend that summer. Then the next fall, the fall of 2018, my grandmother died. She was 99. She died at home over four days. I had never been through a process like that before, but I did help her to transition. I was there with her over those four days. And I thought this was the energy of death that I felt drawing near. And I thought, okay, that's it. I did my death doula thing. That's it. That was the big one. I was really close with my Graham. And that was in the fall of 2018. And then the next summer, my other two animals died a month apart. And then in the spring of 2020, I lost my dad. And that was the big one. That was the really big one. And I was with him and talked him across. It was a lot more than I expected it to be when I felt the energy <laughs> drawing near. I thought it was, I didn't realize it was going to last for a couple of years and be so many people and animals. Um, oh, and, and I lost um, a great aunt who I'd become close with um, in that time as well. So it was, it was just more death than I've ever experienced in my life. And I was very close with my dad. So being at my grandmother's bedside, being at my dad's bedside, I, I did that work that I felt sort of calling me back in the fall of 2017. I had no idea it was going to be like that. And now I know I have no desire <laughs> to be a death doula. And I hope I don't have to do it again for a very long time. Thank you for sharing such personal stories with me. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm getting about you is how committed you were to listening. And, and that's the piece that I'm so fascinated by is that you felt the presence or the energy or the pull or the call to explore more. 
like you said, you had a professional job, you had this career track, you had the credentials, you had the, the respect and all of the bounty that goes with that. And yet you were called to something greater. And in doing that work, look at how you showed up to support all of these people in your life and have these tools to support yourself through your own grief. That is monumental, mm-hmm. monumental. And I think about folks, myself, my loved ones, the people in my circles, how can we listen more? I'm curious about heeding the call. Like I, my whole life changed the day that I stopped fighting with my husband. And I said, okay, I give up. You, you want this to be our last fight? It's our last fight. Mm-hmm. Like all I had to do was succumb. All I had to do was surrender. That's it. I just had to be prepared to say, I give up, I release you, it's over. And that was it. And I was gone two weeks later after 20 years. Boom. Mm -hmm. And everything in my life changed. It had to. It just had to. And I've been on a four-year exploration journey since. Who am I? What's my life all about? And things keep showing up and I keep saying yes. I just keep saying yes. And, I, and I'm following the thread of aliveness, which really anyone who listens to my shows know that's the whole foundation of pink noise is following the thread of aliveness, talking to people who are compelled to do this other thing in their life that maybe wasn't the path that they set about doing in the first place. But somewhere along the way, they pivot, they shift. Why? That's, that's what I'm fascinated by. Why? Where does that call? Like, how do we open ourselves up to listen? And I, I still don't really know my path. A lot of pieces are falling into place the way your pieces fell into place, the way your coach said to you, oh, Carrie, don't you see these things are one and the same? And you didn't in that moment, but you do today. And I believe that these things that I'm pursuing are, the dots are connecting. I'm finding it in my meditation. I'm watching them swirl and orbit around me like a solar system. And I'm seeing all the threads weave and connect and that, um, you know, it's all meant to be can't articulate how or always why but I believe that it's happening and so what I love to reveal for the for the sake of of my listeners is these these moments these ahas these revelations and epiphanies when we see when we hear when we take notice and when we act How would you guide people? How would you guide an individual to listen to their intuition more and worry about the practicality of things less? Well, that's a huge, difficult question, isn't it? Right? I am in a very privileged position that I could quit my teaching job and still have a roof over my head and food on the table right? Because I have a partner who has a decent enough job to allow me to do that. And not everybody can do that. That's not to say that I don't think um, other people can't pursue their passions. I think a lot of people don't know what their passions are. Um, I have people close to me who say, I don't know what my dream is. I don't know what I want to do. And I'm not a life coach in that sense. But in terms of accessing intuition to start to get at some of those answers, like that's what it's there for. And I think that when you can tap into your intuition, 
when you can know that that voice is there, right? First, give yourself permission to know that it's there, to believe that it's there. This is not something that's just available to a gifted few people who happen to be born with the ability to do this. I believe and know, and I teach that this is inherent to the human experience, right? But it goes back to what we talked about earlier. We're not taught that that's something that either it doesn't exist or we're not taught that it's a valid form of knowing. That is something that I think whatever is true or untrue about the past, I think people used to know that a lot more than they do now. Right. And it's sort of what I was trying to say earlier about my PhD and being pigeonholed into, you know, only intellectual work and intellectual knowing being validated versus these other ways of knowing. So this voice, this guidance system is inherent to all of us. And part of what I teach is how to access that. But the fact is, we all have it and it's not that hard to access it. If you allow yourself space to slow down and open up to it, you can do that in formal meditation, but I don't think that you have to do it in formal meditation because it's always available to us. You have to give yourself permission. You have to signal to the universe. You have to signal to your intuitive self that you're ready and willing to receive. And then, when the messages start to come, when the guidance and the direction starts to come, you have to be willing to trust it. Because I believe that we all get intuitive hits. We all get intuitive guidance. We just dismiss it most of the time. Or we say, oh, that was a funny thought I just had. And then we ignore it and move on with our day. But if you take it seriously and you respect it enough, it will start to communicate with you more. And I feel the same way about dreams. If you take your dreams seriously, you'll get more from them in terms of communication and insight and things like that. It's just a matter of respecting these voices, respecting these ways of knowing and these ways of receiving. And then when you can do that, I think, it gives you, again, even if you don't have the privilege in this moment of making a huge leap in your life, you can start moving in that direction if you're following your intuition. And when you're following your intuition, you have more faith in the direction you're moving. And even if you have to take baby steps, or even if you take a huge leap the way I did, which, I mean, sometimes I don't know if I was brave or crazy to do this, <laughs> but um, Whichever way it is, a baby step or a, a giant leap, you just have more faith, right? If you can, like in my case, have faith in the order of the universe and know that no one ever dies and that we're going to see each other again and that spirit lives on and these relationships live on and consciousness lives on. Like if you can do that, you can have faith that taking a baby step in the direction of your passion, even if you don't know what that result is gonna be, like you can trust in that, right? If you can trust in these big things, you can trust in these little things. Um, and then when you trust in the little things, you can you know, trust in a bigger leap when the opportunity arises. Because I also do think that as you align, then more doors start to open. And maybe you're not in a position now to pivot or to take a leap to quit your job, or even, you know, leave your relationship or whatever it is, maybe you're not in a position to make a big move right now. But as you become more aligned with your authentic self, and begin to listen to that universal guidance, that intuitive guidance, then things in your life are going to start to shift to allow those bigger leaps to happen at some point. And, and there you trust in divine timing right, that it will happen at the right time for you. I love that you explained that we are already intuitive conscious beings and the invitation is to slow down and make space so that you can listen to your, your higher self, your knowing self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a message that 
gets repeated continually by so many people in my circle and certainly many of my guests that practice in all kinds of modalities, the common factor with every single one of them is to slow down and pay attention that we already know what we want, why we're here, what our work is. Yeah. And one of the points that I make when I do this teaching, you know, because the question always comes up, like, how do I know it's real? How do I know I'm not just imagining it? Um, Well, first of all, is there any harm in just assuming that you're receiving intuition, right? What's the harm? right? As long as your intuition isn't telling you to like drive off the road or something, right? There's no harm in just giving yourself permission to trust. But also, if you do believe in intuition and you want to pursue that and open it up in yourself, then you ask yourself, where is this coming from? And unless you're coming from a really strictly psychological perspective, which is fine, you're probably going to say, well, it is the voice of my higher self or my soul or my guardian angels or God or whatever. And then at that point, you have to ask, then how can you not trust it? Right? How do you not trust that source? (laughs) If it's your guardian angel or if it's your soul or if it's God, don't you have to trust it? (laughs) (laughs) right um so yeah yeah there's just there's just so little harm in at least taking that leap of trust and belief and permission and saying okay so if I have these ideas that flash through my mind or you know these images or whatever what's the harm in believing that it is actually my intuition and then thinking okay well is there a step or is there an action I need to take in response to that just give yourself permission to believe it. And the more you do that, the more you'll receive. And the more you'll know that it's real. I want all of that for me and everyone else. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Well, thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. I guess it's time for an intuition tune-up because I want that direct access to the divine. Did you catch that mic drop moment at 38 minutes when she talked about how creating a relationship to an energetic source larger than herself was a tool for surviving grief? And then it created peace and calm and an opportunity to trust, trust her path, to reconnect with her work, her purpose, her direction. Who doesn't want that? If the magic lives within you, well, in fact, she said it lives within all of us, and that this is the way to salvage human civilization on earth, the more we find connection with ourself and others and the earth, the more hope we'll have to support our global healing. And I love the simple reminder that it just takes breeding some awareness, some appreciation and gratitude for all of the life that comes with the renewal of spring. That that is honoring the earth and aligning with Mother Nature. I'm leaving this program willing to take more steps in the direction of my passion, even if I don't know what the outcome will be. Because as I align more doors will open. Carrie has an online program to guide humans to spiritual self-empowerment. You can learn more about her work at ancientmagicmodernliving.com or follow her on Instagram at the same name. I'll post the links in the show notes. Next week, I talk to Karina, founder of Hello Inner Light. She's an emotional healing coach, And to get there, she overcame intense social anxiety and self-loathing to find incredible freedom 
And that is why she supports others to do the same. Her work is deeply transformative, compassionate, and profound. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within.